I don't care how exceptional a deal is. I'm not compromising on my core due diligence ever again. I've learned the lesson. I would rather miss out on a deal and not make money than go through that again. Hello everyone, my name is Andrew and today Ping and I are joined by Keaton Kirkwood who is a mortgage broker, he is a real estate investor and he is a soon-to-be new father of his second child which is very exciting. So Keaton, it's really great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I know that you were having a conversation with Ping before and you guys got talking which actually by the way Ping is about to have his first child so you know I think maybe at some point you'll be able to shed some advice to him on how to be a father, a real estate investor, and an entrepreneur of his own, because that's all, you know, quite the combination. Get ready to not sleep. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. Ping was telling me about a conversation the two of you were having, which basically had to do with the whole hype around the real estate market right now. You know, people are always talking about, is it a good time to buy? And this is kind of narrative that it's always a good time to buy just buy 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 and it's almost like it defies logic and you have some very good opinions about that so i was really hoping you could share some of that with us yeah for sure so I, i've been in the industry for about eight years and uh i've worked with major groups like rain keyspire a bunch of smaller groups and not that any of these things are specific to them but one of the things i noticed was that when investors get into trouble and you know someone goes bankrupt uh, a big jv partner collapses it's almost like the movies where the crew comes in they pick up the corpse and they get out of the room as quick as possible and then, oh we don't talk about that over the years as my business has grown and shifted and i kind of joke with clients like my job's to be your paranoid uncle i just noticed that a lot of the groups they almost seem to sell hope hey we're going to show you one or two people they're regular people Look how they transform their lives. The way I look at it, not everybody's going to be the Wayne Gretzky of real estate investing. And if you look at the top 0.1% of any industry, whether it's bakers, movie makers, they're all extremely successful. But I don't know about you guys, but I'm a pretty average person. And um, you know, I, I, I've done a few deals in the real estate investing world. I raised capital. I've got a great partner. We we bruised our knees pretty good. And there's a lot to learn. And I just feel like some of these groups teach people to run downhill with scissors and hope that uh, you don't fall. And there almost seems to be this like US mindset that I, at least I see in the US groups of, well, hey, you get into real estate investing, you're 22, go for it. You can go bankrupt, reset, try again. You learn from your mistakes. Hey, if you go bankrupt again, don't worry. Third time's the charm. If you hit it the third time, well, you're still in line with the person who took their time and did it slowly. So it's it's an interesting mix. Yeah. So uh, again, like selling the dream is a very uh, effective marketing approach. And that's why a lot of people are just trying to talk about uh, how to buy, how to buy. And then uh, over time, you're going to make your money. When do you think it's the best time for Canadian investors to buy? There's obviously, there's the market conditions and that gets a lot of attention. And the message shifts. Market's on fire. Oh my God, you're losing so much money. You're not buying. Oh, market's crashing. Oh, you're losing so much money. You're not buying the dip. But while I think the right strategy at the right time is important, I think more importantly, it's about when is the right time for you? And one of the things that always frustrated me was the people that get put on stage at different groups, the people that get the recognition, it's not based on they took a slow, steady, methodical approach and they stayed within their means and they consistently move forward. It's about John who bought 10 properties this year. And no one mentions that they're at 20% interest and he's leveraged to the hilt. And if one thing goes wrong, it's all going to come down. It's about John bought 10 properties. Mm -hmm. So I think a big part of the right time to buy is when you're in a stable position, you not only have the resources to buy the property, but the resources to protect the property. And I think a lot of people are learning right now that real estate's not always fun. One of the biggest things that drives me crazy is all the talk gets put about real estate's long-term, you gotta be in it long-term, it's for your future, your retirement. 
But then people look back two, three years. They look at when the market's been great and they base their advice and how you should protect yourself based on the last three, four, five years when times have been great. And uh, I think now we're going into a rough patch and a lot of people are learning that that's not so ideal. You know, I, I think you're touching on a couple of really great points there. And even you, Ping, like, uh, I think there's a fine line with people, especially realtors, right? Because people, pe when you're saying people are, they're selling hope. And uh, it's kind of like when you're selling uh, a distressed property, you're selling potential, right? And it's like, uh, they're always selling this idea of what somebody can get in the future. And people don't always consider that that is not always reliable, right? What's reliable is what's happening now. When you're saying how you, people are saying, oh, you know, when things are going up, people are like, buy, buy, buy. When things are dropping, it's just like, you're not buying the dip. It is one of the most common questions that people ask, which is, is now a good time to buy? But you nailed it where you're saying that you, you have to buy what you can afford and what is manageable. And in different markets, you have to look at the data and that will tell you what type of properties are in fact uh, manageable in that type of market, right? Like residential market right now is having a tough time because single family home buyers are unable to buy these houses, even duplexes, they, you know, where they can have the extra rental income. It's not necessarily affordable uh, with the current interest rates at those evaluations. So those are dropping. But with the rent prices going up, what's performing really well right now, I find at least, you can tell me if you agree or not, is uh, multi-residential. Multi-residential, you know, with uh, rent turnovers are pretty strong right now, I think. And they're able to handle the raising interest rates. So people, I think, yes, it's, it is, I, I'm personally have also the narrative, it's always a good time to buy as long as you are looking at the data and buying the correct product for that market. For sure. A lot of people are hyping up about, about the, um, the, the burst strategy, right? And burst strategy essentially means that you're trying to take the equity out as soon as you have the, uh, you have done some value as to your property, get the place rented, and you want to refi, and then you pull everything out, you do another project over and over again. So that's over leverage. People know the strategy, people implement it, but they don't know when to stop. And that's when they get into trouble. One of the things that I always ask my clients is, you know, we explore real estate investing, we explore why they want to invest, what it's for, their timelines. But then I always ask a qualifying question. If you did absolutely nothing, you just abandon real estate investing, you just do what you're doing currently. When you retire, what is it going to look like? Are you going to have enough money to achieve everything you want? Is there a buffer? Can you take care of your kids? Like, at the end of the day, what I'm looking for is if someone says, you know what, I'm in a great place. If I do absolutely nothing different, I'm going to have everything I need and then some. I typically ask, well, hey, if you want to invest in real estate for fun, that's cool. But why are you considering taking on additional risk if there is no reward for you? Like, yes, you'll have more money. But if that extra money doesn't mean something to you, maybe it's not worth exploring. And I find it's just a good check for people's reasons and why they're doing things. You know, as you're saying that, it reminds me of the example of the, the guys who were uh, racing through traffic, right? And they keep on switching lanes. And then they only arrive marginally faster than the people who just stayed in one lane, right? Some people are just like refinance this, leverage that, take private loans on something else. And then what? how much more money did that really add up to relative to the amount of stress that you took and that you can only really be able to tell and calculate when you look at numbers when you actually break things down and not be emotionally impulsive you make a good point there actually because it makes me wonder when you have you check your clients obviously when when you're when you are helping them get a mortgage and you might ask these questions is there any time where you would take your view on this and maybe say you really feel like you should do this and maybe discourage them from doing something that you may feel is the wrong move for them? Yeah, there's a, I have a very real example that happened about nine months ago. There's a client that I met that worked with one of the big banks directly and they had uh, it was a single income household. 
one of the one of the partners that out of the husband and wife um, was full-time real estate investing and the other spouse worked. And they had four properties plus their residence. They had almost, I think it was close to about three and a half million dollars of variable debt. And it was fixed payment variable. And basically the bank had said no. And they came to us and we we looked at it. We were very hesitant. And before we really got to the point of taking action, oh, my bank said they'll do this one. Okay. Like, and I had in text and writing, like, I, I think you're over leveraged. You need to slow down. Like you're you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. You've got, yes, you've got great cash flow, but if interest rates go up, you're hooped. And you guys may not know this, but I left Vancouver to move to Alberta to buy my first home to live in because I was worried about interest rates rising. And I started that about two years ago. Once again, I kind of fall into the skeptical paranoid side. Long story short, person came back. Oh, I want to do another one. And I ultimately just said, look, you're, you're too leveraged. You're all invariable. If rates go up, you're hooped. And the person argued back. We didn't agree. But at the end of the day, I said, I'm really sorry. Like, I'm not here to help you because I see buying an additional property only increases your upside marginally. Buying an additional property increases your downside exponentially because you're going from having very little cash reserves to no cash reserves. Having five and a half million dollars of real estate in one market versus four and a half million dollars, let's say, isn't really going to increase the upside much, but it, it took their ability to weather bad news and completely obliterated it. Now I've almost intentionally, the, the client wasn't happy when I said, I'm not going to help you because I just, I'm really uncomfortable with your situation. I haven't followed up where they're at, but I have to venture with trigger points being hit. And I know the specific lender they're with and their policies, that person's in a very distressed situation right now. I almost know for certain. Good news is one of the spouses wasn't working, so they can probably go back to work and hopefully try to tread water. There's a lot of people in a precarious situation because bye, bye, bye. When, do you, would you say that moving from Vancouver to uh, Alberta, you said, right? Would you say that that was a sacrifice for you? Uh, I used to live in Alberta. I moved out here when I was 21 and worked in oil and gas for a few years before I got back into sales. And then, um, so I, I, I graduated high school in 2008. I got into the trades over the summer of 2008, the mm -hmm. electrical apprentice. Made 12 bucks an hour. I hated it. I got out of it, went back to school. Summer of 2008. We all know what happened after that. I got out of construction. Spring 2014, I was in the oil and gas industry and I just got fed up. I got out of oil and gas, moved back to Vancouver, got sales. We all know what happened after spring 2014 in oil and gas. Maybe I'm just lucky, but I just moved out of Vancouver because it was just getting too expensive, too crazy. I moved to Alberta. We'll see if third time's the charm or not. From a financial perspective, it really looks like you went from big pond, small pond. But in terms of the fish size, it's kind of like if you're in Vancouver, it's like you're relatively speaking a smaller fish you go to alberta you might be a bigger fish but you know you have more control over the circumstances around you when you do something like that like i guess with your real estate uh your finances is that where you invest primarily uh, I, I personally like investing in edmonton i'm open to all markets but i i like consistency and i kind of view edmonton as a market like a tractor it's not sexy it's not going anywhere fast but it's it's pretty reliable i just turned 32 i want to do this long term i'm not interested in trying to get rich quick real estate is like almost like a pension for me i just want to buy one or two properties you know every three to four years and just consistently build a portfolio i don't need to buy up half a block in six months it's just this it's it's a supplement to my long-term plan rather than the main thing and i think it's one of the biggest mistakes real estate investors make is they put like 99 percent of their net worth in real estate oh it's mm -hmm. a great thing next thing you know they're self-directing their tfsas and rsps and oh got a private lend this and that guys nothing's perfect even water we all love water you drink too much water you'll die 
Um, and I think real estate's no different. It's great. It has its advantages, but as some people are learning right now, there's also disadvantages to real estate. And it's about balancing your approach. Belly, it sounds like you have an excellent philosophy on this. I know Ping actually has something you want to say there, but the, the excellent philosophy being that it seems like you've you've figured out the distinction between wanting to get rich off of real estate versus running, wanting to grow wealthy in real estate, right? And and one, it seems like rich, being rich in real estate, you have to really swing for those home runs. And that's what everybody's attracted to. And use the right word, sexy. That's the sexy idea of it. But what is the hard work idea of it is probably what is slow and steady and generates wealth, right? Those uh, and, and not letting yourself get emotional and go off the rails in terms of what your decisions you make. But Peng, you wanted to say something. Okay, so Keaton, you mentioned that the very first couple of properties that you bought, uh, you actually partnered with other people. And your current philosophy is that don't just buy, buy, buy and try to be cautious about your investing approach. Uh, with the real estate. So let's talk about that a little bit because you mentioned that you had a, a poor experience with uh, some of the JV partners and uh, you wanted to kind of share that with uh, with, with uh, some of our audience. Sure. Yeah. So I, I had the same JV partner for both properties. We still get along great. It, it wasn't the JV partner's problem at all. It was my fault. Ultimately, we our very first deal, we uh, got a call from a realtor that I knew and trusted and a general contractor. And they had a deal under contract. And uh, the story was that they'd done their due diligence. It was an exceptional deal. They just couldn't get the money together. But the catch was that they had, uh, there was like two and a half days until the subject removal and the closing was coming up right after. And I was out of the province. Uh, ultimately, I ended up you know, having a long conversation with the general contractor. I, we didn't have time for an inspection or an appraisal. It was one of those like, you kind of got to jump or not. We ran the numbers. We ran really, really healthy contingencies. We saw like a 50% ROI and we got greedy. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. Broke my core rules of like, if it's too good to be true, don't do it. We did the due diligence. The deal was what we thought, but the challenge was it was an unfinished build that had never had occupancy. The seller was a political figure, an MLA. Once again, we're like, wow, they're not going to screw us. Like, Long story short, though, what happened was the city had bounced payments on permits from the previous owner. We got in, I got private financing, I think it was like 10% interest, 70% loan to value, like sight unseen, basically, we got some photos from the realtor. For the first seven and a half months, roughly, our permits got auto rejected by the city because of the bounced payments from the previous owner. Their, their system just got funky, basically. Well, you do the math, 70% loan to value. It was a fourplex, you know, a decent sized mortgage. We bled. So we lost, I think it was almost $50,000 of interest plus our other carrying costs like utilities through the winter, loss of rents, and things just started to snowball. That really, really taught us a lesson. At the end of the day, it ended up being a pretty solid property. It cash flows even now. It was a lesson. And I learned, you know, don't get into an unfinished build. Our second project we did together was a duplex to fourplex conversion. Went great. You still hit delays, little issues. We budget for that. Off you go. But the first project just it was beyond our understanding, I guess, of I didn't know the implications of the side effects or consequences you could have of a essentially a failed build where the city's got permit issues. We found out that like one half of the water with the the water provider and the, the septic or sewer wasn't hooked up because they bounced a check on that as well. And like we had to hook up both sides of the duplex to one sewer hookup, did it in a legitimate legal way, but like it, it, it stretched our ability to problem solve. That's for sure. There are two things I got it from here. One is like obviously acquisition in real estate investing is actually the easiest part. A lot of people, when they talk about buy, 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 they're really just focusing on how to raise capital, acquire the very first pro project. But based on what you just said, the hardest part is actually trying to do the project management until you can actually hit the st stability point. 
for your real estate project. Uh, that's that's number one. That's the second thing that I want to mention is that uh, did you feel like that was there was an incorrect expectation going into real estate in- investing for the fourplex that you just mentioned? Did you feel like the with a JV partner and the scope of work there was a bit of inc- in um, there was a bit of incorrect expectation going into the project? We had a pretty healthy contingency for the first project. Like I think we budgeted like an extra seventy five thousand dollars of just like we know there's going to be gremlins. The biggest thing that got us was just that our permits kept getting rejected and they were being done by a well-known and someone I still trust of being a good professional as a general contractor, the permits were just getting auto-rejected. We couldn't figure out why. And it wasn't until the general contractor basically went into city hall and came unglued. And eventually uh, someone in upper management pulled him up to an office, looked into it, said, oh, there's a glitch in the system. Well, that glitch in the system had cost us like an extra, you know, we would have had some carrying costs anyways, but it cost us like an extra $30,000, $35,000. And it just started a snowball. Then we had to get, by the time we finished the project, we had to get tenants in place um, in the winter. And just sometimes things go wrong. At the end of the day, it was our fault. We jumped into uh, water that was deeper than we thought it was. I learned, you know, I, I shifted my philosophy a little bit under no circumstances. I don't care how exceptional a deal is. I'm not compromising on my core due diligence ever again. I've learned the lesson. I would rather miss out on a deal and not make money than go through that again. But you know, at the end of the day, it was my fault. You live and you learn, right? That also tells me that the next deal that you're going to do, you're going to be fully protected. So our next deal was a lot more successful. Same JV partner, same contractor, same everybody, just different realtor. And um, we we had a much better time. So you have a lot of very excellent core principles, it sounds like. Is there like, do you have like a list that you're just like, I always follow or have you systemized something like this? Like these are the checkpoints I always need to make or do you just know this right now and this is just something you do by nature? No, I haven't written it down, but like I'm an investment focused mortgage broker, right? So I've worked with Mm -hmm. over four or 5,000 clients. I've done a lot of it. So it's not necessarily written down, but I think not compromising on your due diligence, making sure that the project you're taking on fits into your long-term goals. Doing a flip to make an extra $20,000, but your long-term goal is passive income so you can retire. Well, there's not synergy there. I think just having that long-term vision and making sure that each step you take is in that direction, moving towards that long-term goal is critical. And then just be conservative, be safe. Don't don't get the dollar signs in your eyes. Don't start meeting making justifications why you're going to compromise in your core due diligence. There is the extreme of it. And I understand why sometimes people will encourage others by just saying, is just just do it, right? Just as long as like everybody's wearing Nike shirts or something, right? And they want everybody to just jump into everything. But that's also because you have the extremes. There's a lot of people who have analysis paralysis. And the fact that there is even a term for something like that, where in a lot of Field. Somebody would say, you know, taking your time to analyze something is very intelligent. That's a very reasonable thing to do and approach a situation, analyze it. But they've almost made it sound like, oh, if you're thinking too much, you're paralyzed by fear, right? Instead of like, no, I'm just thinking intelligently, right? And uh, grounding myself. So that brings me to my question. Do you feel that anything about your mortgage background and your analytical aspects has benefited you most in real estate like when you started in real estate was this your was were these core principles in place no not at all when i started in real estate i, I quickly learned about jvs and i said i'm not doing a jv so i've been doing this a few years the idea that joint ventures are this magic solution to get money you don't have like bullshit you need to know what you're doing and in my case I, I had a few years of experience i actually brought in a partner that was far more experienced than me i did all the right things on paper we still had a rough go now you'll learn and at the end of the day some people's first deals will be great. Some people's won't. It's just a fact of life. And a lot of it's to do with market circumstances. But no, I definitely didn't know what I knew 
or what I know now in the beginning. Being a broker, I've seen the failures people go through. I've seen the behind the scenes. And that's been a huge advantage of realizing, hey guys, like this isn't all sunshine and rainbows. There are consequences to poor decisions. It's not shared much publicly. It's glossed over or alluded to. I, I think honestly, you could make a real estate investing group and just focus on failure. And you could, you know, use that to imply what would be successful. And I think there'd be demand for that. But instead, a lot of these groups focus strictly on success, right mindset, right action. You've got to take action. Oh, if you have the right coaches, you'll always be successful. Maybe most of the time, but not all the time. And the trick is you got to take risks that you can actually afford to lose. For people who wanted to gain to real estate investing, what are the three uh, advices that you actually provide to them? First and foremost is build a team around you of professionals that are going to focus on setting you up for success rather than setting you up for action. Number two is really, really define your why and your reasons and your timeline. And I think the team can help you do that, but ultimately that's on you. And then the third thing is be consistent and go slowly. Slow is steady, steady is fast. That's great advice, actually. And uh, it, it really goes to speak to your character approach where you even look at, you seem to have such a good handle on why you're doing things, right? And if somebody is just looking for the fast and they're young and they want to take risk, if that's who you are, it sounds like, fine, go for it, right? But just be clear about your goal because I think most people want what you even described where they just want to build up slowly so that when they're older, they have what they want and they just don't realize that that's what they want. And they feel like they want to chase this this idea of like generate wealth, make money. And then they feel bad when they hear these uh, great stories of other people who have made tons of money in real estate, not realizing the piles of people who are laying on the ground because they didn't manage to succeed the same way those guys did. So I think I think you really have like a good foundation as to why, which is really guiding a lot of your actions. Uh, I think that's really excellent. Keaton, another question for you is that if you were to do this over again, is there anything that you're going to do differently? Not compromise on my core due diligence. <laughs> That'd probably be the biggest thing. But I happily work with my JV partner again. I love the guy. He's great. Uh, we really banded together and worked together to solve the problems we faced, which was huge. One of the reasons why I don't think I want to do JVs moving forward is I realized I'm not going to get lucky and get an exceptional JV partner every time. And thank God I had someone who's amazing. But that's not always going to happen. Other than that, like really... No, I, I'm glad that I learned the lessons I have. Sure, I would do it again, but you have to make the best decision you can at the time with the information you have. You can't look back and say, oh, I would have, I should have done it differently. Sure, but if you took the right approach or you took an approach and at the time you thought it was the right call and you made a decision and you understood the pros and cons and you decided that was a risk you were going to take, so be it. You're not always going to be right. You're not always going to make a winning decision. It's about learning and accepting that. Just saying, oh, I'll know better next time. That's not the right route. You have to adjust your processes, you have to adjust your principles, and you're still going to make mistakes. But the goal is you make a few less every time until eventually you've done it so many times, you generally don't make mistakes. You have the perspective to really take your client's uh, best interest in mind, which now brings me to the point of if anybody wants to get in touch with you for mortgage advice, because even from what you're saying, I wish I could talk to you about things because it sounds like you'll give me a very real perspective as opposed to yeah you know this is business for me because i'm it sounds like you've turned down plenty of business and if you didn't because you were just about making that commission or making your money you probably would have done more business but you care about people's the relationships and people making the right decisions so how does somebody get in touch with you if somebody wants to connect with you what is it instagram email what is it that you prefer uh, you can hunt me down on facebook keaton kirkwood or you can go to www.kbmortgages.ca all right so we're going to be leaving some information about keaton here in the description but we are running out of time so we're going to start wrapping it up keaton listen it was really great having you really enjoyed this conversation very insightful very real 
it was very much informative. So if we, we, we will try to have you on the show again, have another conversation as people ask questions, we want to make sure to address them. As always, make sure to tune in next time for another episode of the Property Hustler Show, where we talk all things real estate right here in Ontario. Like, subscribe. We'll see you on the next one.